Father, we just thank you so much, Lord. Just want to be before you in praise and adoration. Lord, in thanksgiving. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Lord, we lift up those among us that are not well. Pedros particularly and others, Lord. Lord, we just ask, we command your healing hand, Lord, knowing that with you, beside you, in the throne of grace, Lord, your heart is to command healing. So with you, working with you, co-laboring with you, we command healing, Lord, upon Pedros, upon you. If there's others here, that need healing, we just shoot up your hand real quick. We'll just pray over you. Just hold it up. Father, we just, we now, we just speak the presence of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that time it says that the presence of the Lord was there to heal. The presence of the Lord is here by, by Jesus' name. The mighty, powerful name of Jesus. The glorious name of Jesus is here to heal in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah. How glorious you are, O oh God, how glorious you are. Uh, one quick announcement. Operation Christmas Child. Um, we're gonna, I think next week or the week after we're going to have the boxes ready. Please pick it up what it is is let me see yeah i'm just going to play this for you and you'll see every single day around 25,000 children are hearing the gospel through operation christmas straightened out. <laughs> All right, now. It's done. That's done. That's done. All right, let's uh, let's go to the word. Thank you, Lord. We just ask right now that that you open up the word to us in our hearts. That it sink deep of what you want to speak to us, Lord. Lord, grant that I, as your vessel, have a free, free uh, door from the throne of grace to the hearts of our beloved 
brothers and sisters here today. Lord, um, we just want to hear your voice. We want transformation by, uh, uh, because of your presence. Lord, we just give you all the glory and honor right now. That may the name of Jesus be lifted high. In his name we pray. Amen. So we've been speaking about, uh, last week I spoke to you about uh, sin and, um, and the cross. Uh, it is central to everything. The cross of Christ is central to everything. To the point that, that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the book of Corinthians, he said, it's actually recorded in the Bible, it says that I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul, who was very much educated in all of the scriptures, he was a Pharisee, uh, educated in the scriptures, he knew so much, more than probably any of the others, because the other apostles, fishermen or this, you know, tax collectors, they weren't educated as Paul was. And so no one could debate as Paul could. But he said, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross of Christ is central to everything in history. I'm not talking about just to Christianity. It is the central point of all of the history of this creation, not just mankind, but of creation. Just imagine from eternity to eternity, this timeline, it all funnels into the cross of Christ. There is nothing else more important it stands beside God creating the universe than the cross. It's that important. If you know nothing else, you will be standing in good company with Paul, who says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This matter of sin, it's not, it's not something that like, you know, um, uh, you're perfectly clean and then you tell a lie. And then from that point on, you know what? You say, okay, I, I lied and now I'm a sinner. It's not how sin works. The reason the lie comes out in the first place is because there's a nature of sin in us from birth. From the point of conception, the Bible says that we carry the nature of sin. That's why at some point, sin comes out. It manifests. You see it as young as little children who, who defy, you know, they, they're caught doing something, they will tell a lie. Nobody needs to teach you how to lie. It comes out. As soon as there's a fear, because the concept of truth exists in us. As soon as there's a fear of something, you are able to lie. It's part of the nature that we carry. This nature on its own is against God. We are born not running with God. We are born running against God because that's the nature of sin. We are not sinners because one day we sinned. We sin because we are sinners. And the answer to that is Jesus Christ on the cross. And I'll elaborate on that maybe another time. But there's two extremes I wanted to actually show. And it, I read a book recently and it showed these two extremes in a really powerful way. And I wanted to quote that. 
It's, it's from the book, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. There is one extreme that takes pride in recognizing there is sin, but it reads like this. There's a pride in the human heart. We insist on paying for what we have done. We cannot stand the humiliation of acknowledging our bankruptcy and allowing somebody else to pay for us. The notion that this somebody else should be God himself is just too much to take. We would rather perish than repent. Rather lose ourselves than humble ourselves. That might touch a court. The other extreme of pride says this. It was actually spoken by an Indian Swami in one of these uh, um, multi-world religion things happened in the late 1800s. He says this. The Hindu refuses to call you sinners. You are children of God, the sharers of immortal bliss, holy and perfect beings. Ye divinities on earth. Sinners? It is a sin to call a man a sinner. It is a standing libel on human nature. That's the other extreme. All of us, we land somewhere in the middle here where... where Perhaps because of pride, because of shame, we feel that we have to pay for this sin ourselves. And so we reject Christ because we are running that payment ourselves. I need to pay for it. So you work hard or you're extremely religious. You, you try to do this and you try to do that all for the sake of trying to gain favor with God. And it never works. Because it's like, a, it's like a fire, it's insatiable. No matter how much you feed it with wood, it will burn and burn and burn. No matter how hard you work to pay for your sin, at the end of the day you will be not satisfied. Because in the day that you feel good and you wake up and you say, I am, today I'm not going to sin, that day you will sin more than you have ever sinned before. And it will just drive you under. So that, that, that doesn't work. The other, so that you might... Consider this as a temptation, I hope you don't, that you consider yourself so good that everything you do is all right. Right? And so now you become the standard and you think God is actually lower. And you become the judge. You become judge. We're seeing this in society today. That society has elevated itself above God in determining the moral code. What is right and what is wrong. And they persecute those that have a different moral code. That comes from the book. Right? Christ paid for it all. He paid such a high price to gain you because he loves you. He paid the price because he knew he and the Father, the Son, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, the Trinity, God one. They, if I may call God they in that way, respectfully, determined that the price of love can only be the cross. So even before any of us existed in the human, as a human race, the cross of Christ had been determined. Because in love, the possibility of rejecting God 
is already in the mind of God. As soon as we love them, we will have to give them freedom to reject us. And so there will, therefore, we will take the responsibility of that rejection. Now, in determining a covenant, we will determine that there will be a cross one day to pay for that rejection so that anybody that's born can have free access to the cross and come into the covenant between the Father and the Son, be forgiven, receive life, and now enter into what God desired, designed from the time he set forth to put us into creation or to make creation happen. That's Jesus Christ in the covenant. And so when Jesus came, he was walking on the earth, he, he came, and all of the things that he did, he healed, he performed miracles, the words that were coming from his mouth were just life. There was a time, actually, it was just a quick digression here. He spoke some really hard words. At that point, he had 70 disciples walking with him. He spoke some really hard words. And it, it, the Bible records that after he spoke this, many of his disciples left and didn't follow him anymore, and only the 12 were left. And he looked to the 12, he says, do you guys want to leave as well? So Peter pipes up and he says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Where are we going to go? I love how Bill Johnson puts it. He says, he interprets it. He says, when you speak, we come to life. Where are we going to go? And so this Jesus who spoke, who performed the miracles, he healed. So obviously now he has grown in fame. Right? So some people from foreigners, Greeks I think, came and asked one of the disciples, said that we want to see Jesus. And so they came and told Jesus that there's some guys here that want to see you. His response is interesting. He doesn't say, no, I don't want to see them. No, I'll lay. He says, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will produce much fruit. It's a strange response to people coming to see you, said the seed must die. Actually, I, I connect the two. I could be wrong, but I connect the two points. It seems that these had recognized the fame of Jesus, recognizing that this man is a king. Let's take him. And allow him to be king with us. Obviously these people are rejecting him. But his response to us sets the tone of what, who Jesus is. He says this seed, he's pointing to himself, this seed must die. I'm not going to go with them. I am destined to die. So that in my death there will be much fruit. This seed will produce much fruit in you. So it's not just that Jesus is dying and paying for our sin. But in that, he is giving us something that produces a similar uh, uh, character in us as in him. He is making us like him. Not just sinners forever, dogs walking the earth and God is... No, he is, he is preparing a bride in the church. He is preparing... A beautiful bride that is comparable to him, ready for marriage to the eternal Son of God. So, whereas 
Whereas in um, perhaps other religions, you might not find this, that God is preparing the human race, not just to, I'm going to forgive your sinners, go ahead and live, you know, happily ever after in bliss. No, no, you're being prepared to become a bride of the eternal son of God. That's huge. And it happens with him dying as the seed, one seed, dying, being raised from the dead, and being distributed to others. And now we receive that seed, and it produces Christ in us. And we also, in our death, we've talked about our crucifixion, right? In our death, we die and produce much. So we see the whole of creation. It's, it's, it, it's interesting that, that Christ's delivery of life comes through death. He puts it into creation itself. Everything that dies produces more fruit. Every seed, like take an apple. What do you do with the apple? It's a beautiful, gorgeous apple. I like Macintosh apples. Personally, my favorite. I look at it. It's so beautiful, shiny, and I eat it, and it gives me pleasure. It tastes great. And then when I'm done eating, the left with the core, there are the seeds. What do you do with the seeds? Now, I haven't planted any, but this is the purpose of it. You take the fruit, you enjoy the fruit. It gr brings great pleasure. Who doesn't like fruit, right? And then the seeds serve a purpose. They're intended to die, be in the ground, so that you can have no longer just one apple, but multitude of apples. The principle exists for us. Jesus dies he produces much fruit. We individually die. We also produce much fruit. And that's what I want to actually talk to you about today is the seed and the fruit. Okay? So, the fruit is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit because when Jesus died, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us, in us, to, for us to be baptized in the Holy Spirit to walk in the Holy Spirit, to walk with the Holy Spirit, to be taught by the Holy Spirit, to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, all of these disciple things of what the Holy Spirit does for us, with us, through us. The, produ the, the, the produce of the Holy Spirit is fruit in us, and it's found in Galatians chapter 5. And he says, and the, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is this, it is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It lists nine. I'm sure there's more. But these things are everything that Jesus is. He is love. He has joy, unending joy. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the long-suffering one. He is the kind one. He is good. He is faithful. He is gentle, and he is also self-controlled. These nine are very interesting, and they are, they are been a fascination of mine for a long time. So what do you have? You have fruit. It doesn't just grow out of the ground. A fruit usually shows up on a tree or in a bush, right? So how do we get from fruit to fruit? There's stuff in between. A tree, soil, sun, 
all of these things in between. So from the time a seed falls until the time it produces, from the time you actually see the fruit, then the seed falls and then you get more fruit. There's all this stuff in between that is really important for us to know. So of these nine fruits that I just mentioned from Galatians 5, it's interesting to know what's in between. What's in between the fruit that the Holy Spirit gives us as love all this stuff happens in between until it produces love in us. What's all this stuff? The joy that we receive from the Holy Spirit because He's joyful until we see joy in our lives. What's all the stuff in between? Ever wonder, what is that tree? What is the infrastructure in between the two fruits? You'll find it fascinating. I find it fascinating. So I'm going to read a couple of verses from you for you. I just want to focus on the one today. I'm not going to cover all nine just want to give the one as an example. It's encouraging enough. You can certainly go and study it yourselves. As you read through the Bible, you'll pick it up. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. So we're going to focus just on joy. I just want to focus on joy. All right. Romans 15, 13. Let me just open that up. It reads this. And I just want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, turn there so that you see it in your own. Whether you're reading it electronically or on paper, it doesn't matter, whatever it is. I don't have it up here. I, I, I personally like this. I, I, I like my phone. I read it a lot. But I just want to encourage you to have that. You don't have to right now, but have it so that you see it where it is in the Bible. You read it for yourself. I know it, 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 will, it will benefit you. So Romans 13, 15, 13. 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to it again. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. So before joy, there was hope. So something infused in us that caused joy to arise. And that, the Bible tells us, is hope. But what is hope? In the English language today, hope is a 50-50 venture. Right? 50-50. I hope it doesn't rain today. It might. I hope it doesn't. But the Bible's definition of hope is different. When the Bible talks about hope, it's assured. There is no going one way or the other. When there's hope, it's sure. It's hard for us to gather, get, you know, get that in our head because we're just so used to hope being 50-50. But it's not the way in the Bible. God is a God of hope. He's not a God of 50-50. When God is a God of hope, He is a God of sure. And even in, in, in another part in, in Hebrews, He talks about how this hope is an assurance. It's like an anchor for the soul. And He gives us the picture of this anchor. In the old times when there were sailing ships, these big galleons that used to travel in the seas, they used to come into a harbor 
And sometimes the harbor was a narrow opening, and then it used to open up where, the, where their ships used to go. So what they used to do is they used to throw uh, uh, um, these ropes into the, these little boats called skiffs. They used to row out with the ropes and these boats. They used to go into the harbor, secure the ropes, and then they used to pull the ship in so that it doesn't get bounced around by the waves. It gets, and Jesus is that. This is the hope that Jesus has gone before us into the harbor and he is pulling us in. There's no other way to go. This is the hope that he's talking about. And when we're filled with this kind of hope, that there is no failure in the plan of God for you. There is no failure. It's not that you might make it, you might not. When Jesus is involved, you will make it. There is no other option. You will make it. There's nothing that will cause you failure in Christ. He says, this thing I am confident of, Paul speaks in Colossians. He says, one thing I am confident of, that the work that he has begun in you will be completed until the day of Jesus Christ. When I was a very young Christian, somebody sang that to me. And so it's, it's remained in me as a, as, a, as a little tune. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I actually lost the tune, I don't remember, but these are the words. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just imagine the Christ who had determined before creation that he would die on the cross so that he would purchase you from the clutches of the enemy will not lose you to anything. He will not lose you. There's nothing that can pluck you out of his hand. Therefore, with confidence, we can say that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. That's not a myth. That's not some fable. That's reality. Everything works for the good. So there's hope. Does that not cause you joy? There's your source of joy. You can't fail. Hebrews 12, 2. Let me just read 1 and 2. Chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do you guys know you're actually enrolled in a race? It's not a race that you chose. When you chose Christ, you were signed up. You got the notice saying, be here on such and such a date. You are running this race. Train so that you can run this race. You are enrolled in a race. Does it not feel like a race? But the world will tell you 
of another race that you are running, a rat race. But you are in a race, but a good one, one where you will not fail. But the enemy will try to trick you and deceive you into thinking that that's the race. This, that is not the race. You can exit that race and come on to this one. What is that race? We could talk about it endlessly. But it's the walk with Jesus. It's this walk with Jesus where you cannot fail if you're walking with him. Now look. Looking unto Jesus, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at what happens here. Just think for a second. For the joy that Jesus carried, he was able to endure a horrific death. And I described last week what he actually went through on the cross and how they used to whip the people that were going to go up on the cross. They used to whip their back and make them all bloody and, and just, just totally wounded, like no bare skin left on the back. Why? Because when they used to put him on the cross and they used to nail the hands and the feet, they used to hang in such an awful way. I used to cut off your ability to breathe. And so they used to push themselves up with their legs and scrape their back on the, on the rugged wood. Awful. To gain a couple more breaths and, until they were too weak and then they would sink down again, lose the breath. Imagine Jesus going through this for two, three hours. And even then, he didn't die. He himself gave up. He gave up the cross. He gave up. But he was willing to go through all of that. Why? How was he able to even... He, he knew, everybody knew about the, 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 the horrors of crucifixion because they were in that Roman time. How was he able to endure the thought of the cross, let alone the cross itself? It's because of joy. So what does joy actually do? We see that hope leads to joy. But joy also gives you incredible strength. And when there's no joy, you see how it sucks the strength away. Sadness brings weakness. But joy brings strength. And that's in Nehemiah. There's a verse. It says, uh, um, it says for the joy of the Lord is your strength. But where is the joy? Is it in Jesus or is it in something else? You know, we work very hard to create an environment where, where, where it will produce happiness in us. Happiness and joy aren't the same thing. Happiness could be the expression of, of joy, but it also can be the expression of your circumstances being perfect. So if you're pursuing happiness with external factors... There will for sure come a day where your external factors aren't up to a hundred percent. And it will cause your happiness to 
plummet. Because it's all external to you. And so what we do normally as human beings, this is what we're prone to do. If what is external to us is governing our level of happiness, we start controlling the people, the issues. We're constantly in control. We're constantly grabbing, trying to align. Don't do that. That doesn't make me happy. Don't do this. Don't do this. We start controlling, especially the people closest to us, our friends, our families. We control them because they're the ones that are governing our happiness. And so instead of being self-control, as one of the nine things that I read, becomes other people control, not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Self-control. So how do you self-control? It's because everything now through the Holy Spirit is internal to us. He has given us the Holy Spirit so that in us it will produce joy. In us it will produce hope. In us it will produce Kindness, goodness, gentleness, all of those things are qualities that the Lord in us produces. And so when I have joy coming out from internal instead of the external, that joy not only produces, it it comes to us through hope, but it also, what it does is it produces strength and hope in the people around me. So as parents, we are particularly responsible. If we want our kids to be strong, full of hope, you, can't, you have to have a good monitor on your joy. See where it's going. Because joy produces hope. Joy produces strength. It produced strength in me. It came to me as a result of hope. It produced strength. So now my joy, being a fruit of his joy, produces also in me, in, in the people around me, sorry, what it produced in me. Strength, hope. Does that not make sense? That when we actually walk away or, or lose sight of where our joy comes from, it's fickle, it's unstable. We become controlling We become mean and nasty. Why? Because things don't work well. They don't work out. And so eventually, as you get older and older, and I've seen this also in many people, where where they're actually, as they're older and they get into their elderly years, they're bitter and sour. All their lives they have been contending against, you know, controlling things that haven't worked out. But we also have examples of godly, Older people that are godly, that are filled with joy and how much strength and hope it fills in us. Imagine this, somebody has lived their lives with full of hope, the assurance of what God is doing. What it does to the children, to the grandchildren. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. There's other good studies in the rest of it. What, what is the tree in between this love that we get from the Lord and the love that it produces in us? What is that? The Bible, what it, like between kindness and, and, and this kindness, between gentleness that we receive, God is so gentle with us, and the gentleness that we express. The Bible says that your gentleness has made me great. If we're walking in greatness, it's because he is gentle with us. What business do we have in being harsh, 
course. Doesn't work. Right? Faithfulness. What does faithfulness produce in us? Let me just quick on that faithfulness. It's an amazing word. The word in Greek is actually the word faith. But we understand faithful to be somebody who just stays on the job, right? They're faithful in their job. They're always on time. They never lay or, or they're, they're never absent. They do their job faithfully. But faith is actually part of that word. Like if somebody is faithful to me, God, that means that they have faith in me. Why else would they be faithful? If you're going to be faithful to somebody, that means you have faith in them. They have a future. They have a hope. All of these things are mixed in in who Jesus is to us. How he comes to us as the seed that has fallen into the ground, that has now risen in resurrection, has given to us the Holy Spirit for us to now walk in the same characteristic as him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Want an easy way to remember it? It's easy to remember the love, joy, peace, right? Love, joy, peace. The other one is just a package of figs. Package of figs. It's an easy thing. P-K-G-F-G-S. Package of figs. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's an easy thing to remember. I, it, it helped me a lot. I hope it helps you. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now turn it over. But as we're stepping back into worship, let's worship who he is. When you find yourself praising Praise requires an object. What are you praising? Use this, Galatians 5. Use it. Praise him for the, for the amazing love that he possesses. Praise him for the amazing joy he possesses. Because as you praise that quality, as you look onto that quality, it becomes part of you. Don't lose sight of the joy that he has. Don't lose sight of the the peace that he has. What does peace produce in us? What is the tree? It's amazing. Praise him for the patience. Long-suffering is another word, beautiful word in the Bible. We'll talk about that another day. If, for whatever reason, Christ, as the eternal Son of God, has been diminished in importance in your life. Take opportunity now. Repent. Repent. Change your mind. Give him the highest place. Give him the highest honor. Give your life over to Jesus Christ. Say, I am yours. You are my master. You are my savior. You are my king. Psalm 132, 2. Let me just read that real quick. I want to pray this over you today. The Lord has touched you. 
that you're beginning to recognize who Jesus is in history and in your life. Do not ignore it. Do not let it go. Step into this. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place. Do not give yourself rest until Jesus Christ dwells in your heart. There is no other. Don't be fooled into thinking that there might be. There is none. Jesus is the only one. Only way to the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way to the Father except through Him. That's truth. I'm going to be up here after the worship. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to anoint you with oil if you need it. But do not leave without giving your heart completely, utterly to Jesus Christ today.